2 Samuel chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set them over commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And their loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armour bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name 
and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You're not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahmias, the son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man. And comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed down before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I I saw a great commotion, but I did not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, good news for the Lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people who steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. 
The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came in into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. This morning we're in the final few chapters of this narrative of King David. Um, We're coming to the end of the the storyline in chronological order, as you like, and then in chapters 21 to 24, it's like an epilogue at the end of the book. And since chapter 11, we've been thinking about the consequences of David's sin, his adultery with Bathsheba, and then his murder of her husband Uriah. But this morning we're thinking about and focusing on his restoration. Because this is a story of the Lord's mercy to David. And it really is wonderful news that assures us that the Lord has mercy for repentant sinners. But it's also a story of contrast, and perhaps we felt that as it was read out to us. Perhaps we'd better say it's a story of juxtapositions. Because in this story, we read side by side of both the Lord's great mercy to David, and also of David's deep sadness. David is delivered from his enemy. He's restored, but he's also distressed because the son he loves has died. And actually, we see David then lamenting his sin as he sees that in the end, it is his sin which has led to this. It's a juxtaposition of sin's consequences, and yet it's an assurance of God's mercy. And so I put on the handout a question at the top. If I sin and I'm sorry, will everything be okay? If we're a human being here this morning, the Bible tells us we will sin. And really the question is just trying to grasp at that sense that we have to ask for reassurance. Is there hope for sinners? And David's story assures us that the answer is an emphatic yes. God is a forgiving God. He will show mercy and he will restore penitent sinners but this story also gives a nuanced answer because we see as a result of sin that there sometimes may be repercussions that we live with and sometimes tears so we'll look at David the sinner this morning and my hope is that it will help us understand the interaction between the assurance of God's mercy and the consequences of sin in this world 
But we'll also look at the Lord's faithfulness to his chosen king. And we'll see that as we come to him, there's grace abounding for sinners and hope for today and for tomorrow because Jesus reigns in steadfast love towards all who come to him. So we have three points this morning. If I sin and I'm sorry, will everything be okay? Well, yes, it will be okay. The Lord is merciful and he delivers David. And yet, delivered David is distress for his son. But yes, because we see in David an imperfect picture of the perfect king who reigns today and his kingdom, which will come when all things are made new. And so our first point this morning, yes, the Lord is merciful and delivers David. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 18 and focus on that chapter. And we'll start by seeing the Lord's mercy to David, the sinful man. Back in chapter 15, David was um, on the run from Absalom. He'd fled from Jerusalem. He was off his throne and he was under God's judgment. And he recognized it and he recognized he deserved it. And so we saw last week David throw himself on God's mercy. He said to Zadok the priest, if I find favor, literally grace, in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. He throws himself on God's mercy. He prays to the Lord for mercy. He asks that he would, the Lord would turn the counsel of Ahithophel, his enemy, into foolishness. And wonderfully, we see the Lord had mercy. Because by chapter 18, instead of David having been struck down by Ahithophel's crack team of special forces, well, the Lord has begun to deliver him. And we even see glimpses of his repentance, his decision to turn away from sin. Before that lustful liaison with Bathsheba, David had stayed at home instead of going out to battle. He was lying on the couch instead of leading his army. Whereas here at the start of chapter 18, he musters the troops. He gets the men ready. Actually, he's ready to go out. Verse 2, I myself will go out with you. And it's only on military advice that he stays behind. And the story goes on and we see Absalom's army is defeated. Verse 6, the army went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And by verse 19, we hear Amitaz reflect on this, the defeat of Absalom's army. Amitaz, the son of Dadok, said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. It's a story of mercy shown to a sinner who acknowledges his sin before almighty God. And actually, David wrote of this, this ordeal in Psalm 3. The title of the psalm, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And the final verse of the psalm declares salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So here again is the Lord's response to the humble and contrite that we see all through these books of Samuel. And here is the assurance that when sinners are sorry and call on the Lord for mercy, the wonderful news of the gospel is we find forgiveness, salvation from judgment, and restoration to relationship with him. David puts it again in Psalm 32 in these words, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
And so it may be this morning, just as we begin, where we're conscious of our sin. In the life of David, we see the truth for all men and women, that the Lord has mercy on penitent sinners. And yet this chapter is not simply the story of the Lord's mercy to David, the sinful man, because also the story of the Lord's faithfulness to his promise to his chosen king. Because, of course, David is the Lord's anointed. And we've seen back in chapter 7 that the Lord has promised that from David's family line, he will raise up and establish a king who will rule forever. And although Absalom's from David's house, the way things are written here, well, they show him acting as an enemy of the Lord and his anointed. The way Absalom's defeat is described underlines this. So we find that on the way to the battle, David musters his men at the river Jordan and they cross over to defeat the enemy. And there's just a hint that it's like a rerun of the conquest of the promised land. David, a bit like Joshua, Absalom, a bit like those who rage against the Lord and his anointed. And then in the battle between David's army and Absalom, did you notice that actually it is the trees who win the real victory? We see that in verse 8, the battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And if you remember back to chapter 5 in 2 Samuel, when David um, was looking to defeat the Philistine army, we read that the Lord went ahead like the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees and won the victory for him. And then there's Absalom's death. And it's described in terms that show that it is a picture of the Lord's judgment on Absalom, the rebel. Verse 9, he gets caught up, dangling in this tree. And in Israel's law, to be executed on a tree was a picture of God's judgment. And then we read that Absalom is eventually struck down and buried under a pile of stones. And again, it was a picture of judgment in Israel. The, the, the sin of Achan was punished and he was piled under stones. The Lord is not mentioned by name in this first half of chapter 18, but all the events show that the Lord has gone ahead to deliver David and to bring judgment on Absalom, who's opposed his chosen king. And then when the Lord is mentioned, well, just three times, every time it is to emphasize his deliverance. Verse 18, uh, verse 19, Amahaz says, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hands of his enemies. Then verse 28, Amma has again, blessed be the Lord your God who's delivered up the men who raised their hands against my Lord the King. And then verse 31, good news for my Lord the King, for the Lord has delivered you this day. And what we see here in this story, looking at David the King, well, is Lord, the Lord being faithful to his promises. The Lord being faithful to his promises to establish his perfect, eternal king. And in Jesus Christ, we see his promise is fulfilled. And through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, the penalty for sin that we deserve is paid. And so as we look at the Lord's faithfulness, we can be sure that when we come to him and ask for mercy, we will receive it. The Apostle John puts it this way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we have that question, if I sin and I'm sorry, will 
everything be okay? And here we see the answer is yes. The Lord is merciful and he delivers David. And yet in our second point, we see delivered David is distressed for his son. Chapter 18 is the story of the Lord's mercy to David and his faithfulness to his promises. But it's also the story of David's love for Absalom and his grief at his death. And the author really emphasizes this juxtaposition. We've seen it repeated that the Lord delivered David. But actually in the narrative, there's very little about the battle itself. And you notice the chapter's dominated with David's feelings for his son. Verse 5, he tells the commanders in the hearing of the whole army, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. When Absalom is stuck in the tree, we end up listening to a whole argument between Joab and one of his men as to why he hasn't been killed. Verse 12, the man said to Joab, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. Actually, we discover that out of 33 verses in the whole chapter, 15 of them are focusing on how the king should be told the news about the victory and his son. And it's an extended scene. There's great discussion about who will run, Amahaz or the Cushite, and then a drawn-out narrative as one runner is seen, and then another arrives, and David waits for the news to get to him. Amahaz announces, all is well. The Lord has delivered you. And David asks, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Amahaz scrambles to avoid an answer. And then the Cushite arrives, good news for the Lord, my king, for the Lord has delivered you. And David's response, is it well with the young man Absalom? And it's the moment that we've been anticipating. And verse 32, the Cushite answered, may the enemies of the Lord, my king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It's a very moving scene. It's a very real scene, the picture of the grief of a father for a son whom he loved. And it's also a picture of lament, because it seems here that David also laments the sin which led to it all. Oh, my son Absalom, would I, have died, would I had died instead of you? As a result of his adultery and murder, the Lord had declared through the prophet Nathan that the sword shall never depart from your house. And David here laments his own sin that indirectly brought about Absalom's ruin. You see, in this chapter, we see the assurance of God's mercy and also the consequence of sin set side by side. And I've been wrestling with how we apply this correctly this morning. I'd love us to keep thinking about this together and to get further with it. We have to remember that before we draw lines directly to us today, we have to be clear that this chapter is talking about David the man, like us, and also David God's chosen king, not like us. So we can't apply it all directly. But we can look at David and his relationship with God and see that when we come before him and ask for mercy, whatever we may have done, we really can be forgiven and restored to relationship with him. 
And we really can put sin behind us and enjoy the Lord's salvation through his son. And yet, we need to be realistic that sometimes there may be repercussions of our sin that we lament and perhaps have to live with. I think this can be helpful to us as we understand how to respond if others sin in ways or we sin in ways that have particular serious consequences. There can be misunderstandings of God's mercy which say forgiveness means everything must always automatically go back to exactly how it was. But we see with David, some sin means that can't or shouldn't happen. In some circumstances, there really is forgiveness, but things might not be quite the same. And for the person in those kind of situations, well, this story as a whole means we really can give wonderful assurance that God will not repay us according to our sin because at the cross he rescues us absolutely from judgment. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can give wonderful assurance that we're right with God and we will be saved on the day of judgment. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And we'll see in our final point this morning that under the rule of the Lord Jesus, there is wonderful hope for today and tomorrow and for eternity. And yet we can still be realistic. There may be repercussions to live with. But situations like that are not every situation, and yet all of us sin. So what does this chapter have to say to the everyday experience of that battle with sin? Again, I've been wrestling with this through the week. I will put this to you. I'd love your thoughts. I wonder if for some of us it just might be possible to hear this and find that we go away just trying to, if you like, make direct connections between our sin and and consequences and try and join it all up really neatly. And I think we need to be really careful of that. Sometimes sin and its consequences are clear. Sometimes they last. That's David's situation. But often it's not like that. And it's not clear at all. And we live in a fallen world which is groaning under the effects of human sin in a general sense. There can be all sorts of factors in play in different situations. And sometimes things happen simply because it is a fallen world. And so I think we will tie ourselves in knots if we go away this morning thinking that it's impossible to link every hardship or sadness or event to a particular sin. We're not to try and do that. It seems to me instead better that we recognize sin is never neutral and we hear the warning that if we're tempted to sin in the future, it won't do us any good. And then to rejoice in the mercy of God each day. And to walk on each day in the normal Christian life, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness, knowing that we are justified by the work of the Lord Jesus, and that at the cross, Jesus breaks the power of counseled sin, and then walk forward under the loving rule of our King. And this is what we want to look at in our third point. If I sin and I'm sorry, will everything be okay? Yes, the Lord mercifully delivers David. And yet, delivered David is distressed for his son. But yes again, because we have a perfect king who rules his kingdom. From chapter 19 onwards, David really is restored. He really does rule again in Israel. But compared to the high point of chapter 8, 
Well, his rule and his kingdom, they've, they've lost their shine. Rather than a sparkling crown, these chapters are more like heavily tarnished silver. The first major section of 2 Samuel runs from chapters 2 to 8. The second major section runs from chapters 9 to 20. And they both conclude with a sort of summary sentence full of lists of David's officials and um, people's roles in government. And at the end of chapter 8, the list begins like this. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And in the list, we read on and we find that even David's sons are priests. But at the end of chapter 20, at the end of this section, well, the list reads very differently. The list begins like this, chapter 20, verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. There's no mention of David, no mention of his sons. The shine has gone. We see in David's rule that he's not what he needs to be. But we see in David's rule in these last few chapters, we see an imperfect rule, but in it a picture of the perfect king that David needs and that we all need and who is sure hope for sinners. And so we're just going to see this briefly in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 16, we meet Shimei. Shimei was last seen cursing David as he left Jerusalem. But here he comes and falls before David and asks for mercy. And whatever we meant of the purity of Shimei's motives and his, politi- and his politics, it is a picture of repentance. He has fallen before God's king and surrendered to him. And then following Shimei comes Mephibosheth, Saul's son. And he is aware of what he deserves. And he comes to David full of thanksgiving to God's king, the one who's shown him mercy and extended steadfast love. And he says this in verse 28. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And then following Mephibosheth comes Barzillai, who provided food and provisions for David when he was fleeing Jerusalem. And David offers him further reward, but Barzillai declines it. And it seems to be because he is simply content that his king is on the throne and he can rest under his rule. Now, if we were to go back through the chapter and look at David's responses, we could have a good discussion about how muddled his justice is. We might think he's fallen somewhat short of the promise he made back in chapter 9 to Mephibosheth of his steadfast love. But by this point, we know David is not the one who will deliver the kingdom. We've seen that the Lord will be faithful to his promise and he'll raise up an eternal king forever. But what the imperfect David lacks as he returns from exile, having defeated his enemy, the Lord Jesus fulfills through his resurrection from the grave, having defeated sin and death forever. And so in chapter 19, we see assurance of the wonderful daily hope for those who come to Jesus. Like Shimei, those who repent will find in the Lord Jesus mercy. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never turned to Jesus before. Perhaps you're conscious of sin and you've never brought it to him, wondering, would it be good for me if I do? Well, Shimei had cursed David to his face. And yet in repentance, he found mercy and a place in his kingdom. 
all who come to Jesus for mercy will find the same. And like Mephibosheth, because of Jesus' steadfast love, we can come to him and we can lament our sin and we can do so in assurance of restoration and a place at his table forever. Jesus' mercy is a reason for thanksgiving. Mephibosheth is thankful because he knows he's received mercy he doesn't deserve. And like Barzillai, when we surrender to King Jesus, it really is possible to be content and to live with wonderful daily hope, whatever our circumstances. Because he is our king and he's abounding in steadfast love. The missionary Helen Rosevere writes of wrestling with this experience and her sense of grasping it. She writes this, Once repentance is real and forgiveness sought, the past is the past and no longer has an interpretation in the present. The present may well be different from the might have been. It may well be affected by the consequences of previous disobedience and sin. But nevertheless, it is the best in the immediate now. And she says she's found this to be a most glorious and liberating truth. Because with King Jesus, there is always hope for today in the immediate now. Because he rules his people with steadfast love. And he leads and transforms his people by his spirit through his word. And as Jesus forgiven people, we have a fresh start and the daily privilege and purpose to serve him until he returns and removes every last trace of sin. And on that day, we'll hear the voice of the Father saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Well, let's pray together. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy poured out in and through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we come to you. And thank you that we can, each one of us, live today under the wonderful rule of the Lord Jesus, knowing his grace and purpose and bright hope for today and tomorrow. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.